everybody and welcome to Miss Nagin Isquayak. Look, I learned how to pronounce it properly this time. It's only <laughs> been Isquayo. is one, Isquayak is multiple, so I finally learned how to pronounce it properly. Go us. But also there's this big thing over whether or not you need a Macron within Isquayo or Isquayak. We spell it with, you can spell it without. It depends on where you're from. All the Nietzsche's across Cree territory. I am Kayla. I'm Tanya. And I'm Sheila. And yes, we have a special guest. Our special guest has taught two of the book women in the <laughs> Faculty of Native Studies. Who are the book women? Us. We are. We are. Is that the name of the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> First I'm hearing of this. Oh, okay. Well, yes, yeah, so well, we are the book women because we are all librarians. Yeah, yeah no, and I get it. Actually how we, so it comes about because that's actually how you save librarians, speaking about a female librarian in Crete. It's just a book woman. Um, Dorothy translated that for us. So we are the book women. So we are here with our special guest. And do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Chris Anderson. Cool. So do you want to maybe elaborate on who you are and where you're from? You know, that thing we do? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Chris Anderson. I'm uh, Métis originally from the Parkland region of Saskatchewan. I grew up in um, Prince Albert and surrounding area mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan. I did my undergrad and my master's at uh, Queen's University in Ontario. And then I came back here to do a PhD uh, in 1996 and then got hired in the faculty in 2000. And basically, I'm a living proof of what happens to mediocrity. If it uh, hangs around long enough, it just floats (laughs) up to the top. So would you be able to talk to us, Chris, a little bit about your experience with publishing? Sure. What kind of experience do you have in publishing? Uh, editing, writing, anything like that? Well, I've published uh, probably about uh, 20 articles and book chapters. I think I'm up to seven edited collections. I have a book that I published, and then I was co-publisher, co-writer of another book. Um, I'm also the editor of Aboriginal Policy Studies and have been since 2010. So I would say I have a fair amount of experience with most kind of aspects of uh, publishing involved in uh, non-fiction kind of academic-y writing, although I have done a very little bit of uh, creative non-fiction as well. Can you tell us a little about your creative non-fiction? Uh, I wrote a piece for uh, The Walrus mm-hmm. about the way that Métis gets measured in the census and the problems with the way it gets measured in the census. That was not my favorite experience writing for Walrus, <laughs> I would say, because they, and it's nothing to do with them, it's just when you don't write creative nonfiction, it's very difficult to move outside of the conventions of writing academic stuff. So, for example, I, I think they went through it seven times, and every time they would say, ooh, can you give another flick about blah, 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 blah? Mm-hmm. Can you give another flick about blah, 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 blah? So I would, so when I look at the first draft and look at the seventh draft, they're very, very different kind of mm-hmm. drafts. It ended, ended up being a better piece, I would say, but I'm not used to people who don't know as much as I do about a subject telling me how to increase the rhetorical power of the piece, which it definitely did. Um, and they were very kind of surgical and really helpful, but yeah, it's very humbling. What's a flick? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. And I emailed them back and asked the, asked the same question. Yeah. So the way that they read the piece was that they were going through it and looking for kind of moments in the piece that kind of pushed the story forward. And okay. so if I got to a sentence that was either kind of really turgid or whatever, they would say, can you, can, a flick is basically, can you add a sentence or a phrase or something like that that moves the actual narrative mm-hmm. forward as opposed to kind of adds information to it. 
Because in fact, the problem with the piece was that there was too much information in it and not enough kind of narrative narrative flow. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I got from them. They haven't asked me to write since, so. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I also wrote for a Globe and Mail, and I made it in their opinion section, and they they gave me one day to write it, and I wrote it and gave it to them. They're like, okay, and it just got published the next day after that. That was after the Daniels decision came out. So you've kind of done a lot of different publishing styles or like kind of disciplinary styles. Um, what's your favorite? Do you like writing more like academic or do you like kind of writing that nonfiction or opinion pieces? I mean, I like them both for different reasons. I think I'm probably better at writing the academic stuff because mm-hmm. I have more training in it. I don't like writing things where I'm not citing my sources. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that bothers me a lot about creative nonfiction is they don't cite a lot of their sources. And I think intellectual genealogy and intellectual generosity is really important when you write in an academic context, and which is why you cite people, even though we have mostly shitty citation styles. And most of the, like, for example, someone will write a sentence and then they'll put the name and date of an author at the end, even though the thing that they're citing, the sentence that preceded it may have been only one tiny section of the whole book, but they'll cite the whole book. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, well, wait a minute, but you're not, this is not what the point of the Mm -hmm. book was. You're just too lazy to find the actual page number or chapter number or whatever to do it. So that that annoys me, and I've been guilty of it as well, because mm-hmm. it's just easy sometimes to kind of cite three or four things at the same time. Yeah. But I, it's the thing I, I, I like most about academic writing is kind of the way in which intellectual genealogy gets positioned. So it's your favorite citation style? Oh, well, it should be everybody's favorite citation style. Is it Chicago? Of course it's Chicago. Yeah, Chicago for the <laughs> win! Oh, but hang on, hang on. No, 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 but no. Chicago... Chicago Manual of Style is the is the style that every other style goes back to when they can't yeah. solve a particular problem. Yeah. Do you like author date or footnote? No, no, author date for sure. Oh yeah. no! Oh. No, no, you work too win. long. No, no, you work too long in that. It's math. a pain in the butt. I throw all math. my additional stuff right in my footnotes. No, no, I do footnotes, but author date doesn't mean you can't have footnotes. I just don't it's put true. any of my references in my footnotes. Oh, but I write like tiny essays in my footnotes. No, I do too. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. What do you put in your footnotes? Like, Everything. Oh, man. Like Everything. a secret treasure hunt? Generally speaking, what footnotes often get used for is they get used for uh, arguments that basically support your main argument or are kind of another another line of argument that you don't have time or space mm-hmm. to get into. A mm-hmm. flick? Yes. Well, <laughs> Except it's like a, it's like a Sharpie marker to flick. Yes. Because I did see, a, I saw, I've seen footnotes that go multiple pages. Like, yeah. same one footnote yeah. that goes multiple pages. I've written reports that are literally, like, one sentence, and then the footnote t- takes up the rest of the page. That's dedication. Yeah. Oh, man. I love footnotes. I love putting stuff into footnotes. It's why I never allowed students to do footnotes in my oh, classes, because yeah. you get three lines of sentence, and then ibid, 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 yeah. because it's the same source over and over yeah. again. So. We've, like, and that the, is no bueno. Yeah. For the class that like Tanya and I teach we allow like we do an APA and it like it hurts my soul to do APA but most of the students do it wrong they do they do it wrong and then we're like doing it right doesn't make it that much better yeah hey now I'm an APA kind of gal why (laughs) what do you get from APA that you don't get from Chicago Manual Style Oh, well, it's easy. The Chicago Manual style is easy. I know, I know. Man, this is the nerdiest <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Who cares? It's the best conversation. You're, you're book women, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. The nerdiest conversation that also has the phrase beer fart. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that out later. No. No, no way. That's in there. That's, that's in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right, Sheila, let it let it go. Okay, okay person. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. So, how to 
does your family feel about you <laughs> publishing your family stories, if you have? I haven't really published a lot of them yet because the dean position kind of slammed into it. And so that project's basically ground to a halt. It's actually something I feel really guilty about because I, I went into our community and a lot of people took the time to give me these really amazing stories and I just haven't been able to do anything with them okay. since. I don't think they... I don't think they care that much because I don't really think they know like for example a couple weeks ago I got a text from one of my cousins who lives in Whitecourt and he said hey cousin he said that we're playing a game where we read random sentences out of your book and then we try and guess what they mean oh no oh. that's pretty it's pretty common actually for people when there's only one academic in a, mm-hmm. in a family to do that Mm-hmm. And so I, so I wrote them back and I said, uh, yeah, well, that's actually pretty common. So good luck. Let me know how you, how you go. And then they wrote me back and said, uh, well, most of your sentences seem to make more sense than we, than we thought they would. Because, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I gave books out to a bunch of family and they mostly used them for like coasters and to lift couches up and stuff like that. I don't, mm-hmm. uh-huh. too many of them read kind of the whole through. My wife only made it through to page four. The Métis? Yeah. Like your big book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had, I've read it. I've read it like chapters multiple times in a row to kind of comprehend but also I was taking your class Mm -hmm. on the Métis while doing that so I felt like I needed to do that additional like read or two or four Um, yeah precious to use your own book in a class that you're teaching but there's not there wasn't a lot of other books exactly there There wasn't a lot of books out there when I took this class in like 2015 that were as good as Chris's book so it was kind of one of those things though where you definitely if the person who wrote the book is sitting almost across from me at a table. You want to double read, triple read that book just so you feel like you make sure that, you know, if you don't agree with something in the book, that or you have a great argument against it. For sure, it. it's a perfect um, opportunity to get ripped into. I've been ripped into on numerous occasions for the lack of gender analysis yeah. in the book, and quite fairly, too, as far mm-hmm. as that goes. Yeah. yeah, and you had K squared in that class, the two Kaylas sitting side by side so yeah. mm. and molly as well and molly yeah and also like i've had recent like discussions with people how it wasn't only buffalo hunting <laughs> i never said it was only buffalo hunting uh yeah i guess yeah. i said it's a buffalo hunting people it was yeah. a mainstay of an economy but it, they were mixed economy people that's true now if we want to get into an argument about whether the people really <laughs> far away in small communities were made to yes. or not that's a different discussion true. but you might have a nasa present presentation next year about not only buffalo hunting oh with dave parent yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was recruiting um he's got the fishing i got the york boating well he doesn't really have the fishing well he says he has a fishing yeah, and we're things. coming for you on the buffalo hunting so yeah or we could all just have this trifecta of everything dave parent future podcast guest Dave would be awesome to have as a podcast He guest. would be awesome. You think I'm geeky? No, we're all geeky. Yeah. Chris, can we rewind maybe like sure. five minutes? Please. <laughs> would you be able to talk a little bit about what your book is about for the listeners who haven't read it yet? I've always wanted to say this. Which one? Métis. I'm thinking Métis. Hmm. And then talk about... Sources and methods. I really Sources like and methods. And there's, there's also indigenous, indigenous in the city. statistics yeah. as well. Oh, oh yeah. Statistics, That's yeah. a big one, too, that people just really, like completely forget about for some yeah reason. why isn't that it's one on the comps list why isn't that why didn't that make the comps i think it did make the comps list i didn't see it i At think it's under yet. critical indigenous studies i thought it's not yeah it's not that good a book but it's important yeah it's i mean important, it's yeah. it's important because it's not like north of 60 was really good because there wasn't six or seven different series that were like north of 60 mm-hmm. when you're the only book in a in a particular genre like it's and it was not a good experience writing that book either i would mm-hmm. say there was I don't know how much I can say there was lawsuits involved there was there was wow. some pretty banana stuff that was part of it my Métis book is a book about why so many people call themselves Métis when they're not 
And the thing I learned about that book is that people really don't like you telling them they're not Métis when their parents and grandparents have been calling them Métis since they were a little kid, even when they're still not Métis. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in looking at uh, how the term Métis gets constructed in the courts and how it gets constructed in the census, mm -hmm. and then how people have kind of um, started to use the term uh, Métis as a way to push various types of uh, uh, greater or lesser nefarious political um, agendas, yeah. uh, like in kind of um, Central and Eastern Canada. The Eastern Métis? Well, they're not Métis, those, but the, those folks. the Eastern folks that call themselves Métis. Yeah. <laughs> Heavy quotations on that. Yeah, which I'm sure you'll get hate mail now if they listen to this. Uh, oh, if they listen to the podcast, let, fine. let them hate on us. We're three strong Indigenous Métis women. We're mean Métis aunties. That's true. Like, call us. We're in our home territory. We're fine. Yeah, we're yeah. Just be careful because they're some of them are pretty unhinged. So it's mm. it's good to mm -hmm. it's good to be careful. Yeah, I know. There's other Métis podcasts that are that are out there. Yeah, which are also a bit unhinged. Mm -hmm. Yes, they which are. I won't name yes, them, but. They are, but. but if you're Métis, aren't you just a little bit unhinged anyways? Yeah, but there's good unhinged and bad unhinged. That's true. And they're not Positive Métis. and negative <laughs> troublemakers. When I read your book, Chris, I obviously I'm a library person, and all of the chapters in your book just kind of, for me, it spoke to library categorization. What's the word for that? Yeah. Categorization? Yeah. I'm looking at you, Sheila, because you're the metadata expert. How would you, I guess, prefer to have your book categorized within a library system or within a book system? Hmm, what are my options? Indians um, of North America, Indian authors. Um, those are the current subject those headings. Those are the current subject yeah. headings. I mean, if those are the only subject headings that exist, uh, Law and Society. Mm -hmm. be nice to put it under that. French theory, because of uh, how much Bourdieu I use. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really a theorist, but they could, people could probably get stuff out of it. Uh, Western Canada, is there, a, is there like a Western Canadian? Uh, there's like Canadian really. history. Like a lot of the times when you see like... Well, it's not a history book though, so I wouldn't put oh. it in Canadian history. Mm. Well, like, so the way that it is now is like E99 is Indians of North America, like E98 to E99, Indians of North America. If you start getting into the FCs, that's where a lot of like fur trade history, um, yeah. Métis history is in. So there's, is, this, really... is this within Library of Congress or yeah. Dewey That's Decimal? Library of Congress. Okay. I don't know Dewey. I stay away from Dewey. Don't I did, know. A, I did a project on Dewey when I was a uh, wee beginning yeah. master's student. There you and go. I said Hashtag I would, racist. And I will never go back to Dewey because I'm not all about that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Dewey's probably worse than Library of Congress. So, Dewey, I think it would be in, in the 971 area, which is like Indians, you know. I mean, I would put it under. History put it under Indian, it's not history, it's, it's historical sociology, if anything, but it's not kind of historiographical, and it doesn't, it doesn't ask any of the questions or kind of fit any, any of the conventions that a Canadian historian would normally be interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, for sure put it under law or law and society if there's, if there's one of those. Yeah, I, I just, I find the way that libraries categorize things really weird, but at the same time, given the millions of books that they have to categorize, there's always going to be some weirdness. So, as a librarian, I can assure you that it is weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. And we yeah. do a bit of a, like outsourcing to the bigger companies too for our, like cataloging needs. Uh, so like OCLC, WorldCat, and WorldCat had me in as. Um, Isn't it Kid Anderson? Oh yeah, I was supposed to ask you about that. Kiddo, Kiddo Anderson. Kiddo oh, Anderson. Geez. Nobody can get your name right, but how did like as an Indigenous author? How did you feel about having your name as Kiddo Anderson? And we tried to change that multiple times. Well, it still hasn't changed? 
I don't know. I haven't looked recently, but I mean, I mean from I, what I from what I heard, the rumors in the in the mill was that social capital was used to get your name changed, but who knows really? Oh, mm-hmm. and to, it was to yeah, so Paul talked to Denise and said, hey, do you know that this is a problem? And Denise said, I will fix it. And then she did. To, but it was, she's fixed it to kiddo or from kiddo? To from kiddo. From kiddo. Oh, okay. But yeah. it was one of those things where, like, your actual, I think it was, like, your actual physical book was coming up as Chris Anderson, but it was the e-book that was coming up with kiddo. Because we have two. So we split our e-books from our physical copies that we hold in the library. So mm-hmm. one was correct, but the other one was not. Interesting. That's so stupid. Yeah. Libraries can be stupid. Yeah. yeah, I honestly don't care about most of that stuff only because if someone's not smart enough to find the book online, I don't really want them reading it anyway. Because yeah. <laughs> they put in the title and put in last name, like mm-hmm. unless it was unless it was some giant screw up where they got the last name completely wrong as well. Other than that, I don't care really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I don't. I don't think that many people are taking the book out of the library anyway. If you look at the citations on Google Scholar, I'm only at like I don't know, like 300 or something like that. How many is average? Do you know? <laughs> I, I, th- I sadly think that's above average, but but uh, if, I would imagine. It if you look right? at someone like uh, Audra Simpson's book or Glenn Coulthard's book, mm-hmm. they're like in the gazillions. Yeah. Jeez. yeah, it depends on your discipline, and like it yeah. depends on what you're using to calculate that. Um, so I know for, cause when I worked at U of T, like a lot of people would like want their Scopus um, mm-hmm. age index. So mm-hmm. how many times you've been cited? Anyway, it's a whole thing. And people are like, for job applications, like some, some fields will ask like, what is your Scopus age index? It's a thing and if you don't do it right, very quickly people get mad at you cause anyway. They do, because people get mad at you. You're a fairly, what I would consider to be a fairly well-established author. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing that you actually published? Can you remember that? Yeah, it was actually in 1990, 1998, I published a chapter on the first Pally decision that came out. And mm-hmm. it was a chapter in Expressions in Canadian Native Studies, which was a, a textbook that the University of Saskatchewan had put together for intro Native Studies classes. Mm-hmm. And there's like, it's like 500 pages or something like that. I cringe now at what I wrote <laughs> no. kind of like 20, 20 years ago. But um, yeah, that was the first thing I ever published. But I, but that was the first thing I ever published, but that's not the first thing I ever wrote. The first mm-hmm. thing I ever wrote was a piece for Canadian Journal of Sociology or maybe Canadian Journal of Sociology and Anthropology. And I wasn't confident enough to write on my own at that point, so I got one of the, I got a professor that I had written the piece for the class to co-write it with me, and then that got published, and that was on um, urban natives before and after uh, RCAP, I think. And then I had another piece in Crime Law and Social Change that I got published right around the same time that I had no revisions on. So I thought I, I thought I just didn't get published, and then suddenly they sent back they sent back proofs. They didn't message you to say, hey, yeah, it's been accepted. No. Wow. No, no, but there was no, I didn't even get any reviews. Really? Well, oh. they, I assume that it said it was peer-reviewed, mm-hmm. so someone reviewed it and said, yeah, I have no changes to it, wow. which is, never happens. I would, send out, yeah. I, would send out a, I would send it out to another reviewer if a reviewer wrote back to me and said they had no suggestions for change, because mm-hmm. that just means they're lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you noticed any difference between then and now versus, I mean, in terms of publication? articles and things like that well it's it's certainly slackened off in the last three years i'm only basically publishing one article a year now before i was doing anywhere between my biggest year the 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 
the Métis book, the Indigenous Statistics book, and four articles all came out the same year. Uh, and I was going up for full professor that year. And aside from that, I usually do between two and three articles or chapters a year. But I basically, we have a book on um, New Directions and Métis Studies that's coming out next year. I have another book on Indigenous Foucault uh, that if my co-editor gets in gear will be coming out. And then... We have another uh, Rutledge handbook that'll be coming up probably next year. Yeah. Indigenous Foucault, is that an anthology? Well, yeah, it's an edited collection, so... Sweet. Yeah, it's just it's taken forever to get it out, so... Yeah. yeah. That's with the University of Minnesota Press, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's certainly a lot more stuff to cite now than there was back in the day, and a lot more Indigenous Studies stuff to cite now than there was back in the day. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, obviously, but when you get more... When the field gets bigger and the discipline grows you get kind of higher and lower quality stuff. And so that creates a lot of infighting in terms, or kind of maybe fighting's not the word, discussions about kind of whether to, to publish certain things or not. And there's a lot more identity politics now about yes. who and what to publish and what not to. And I think a lot of that comes from the fallout from um, Andrea Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of identity politics, is there any specific journal that you would prefer to publish in as opposed to another one? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, now I try and publish in uh, indigenous Studies journals, mm-hmm. so Wakazaza or American Indian Journal of Culture and Research or American, the ASR one. It's like American Indian Journal of Culture and Research, but it's the it's a, the smaller title. I can't remember what it's called. It was run out of... I have no idea. Yeah, but there's, a, there's another. Those were the two big ones in the field before uh, Wakazaza came in. And then, of course, the NACE journal as well. Mm-hmm. But I haven't published in the NACE journal because I've been on the editorial board, so... Oh, right. Is there any reason why you choose to pick um, Indigenous Studies journals as opposed to anyone else? Well, yeah, because it, because disciplines become disciplines when people believe they're disciplines, and mm-hmm. one of the things that you do to build up a discipline is to is to pick kind of flagship journals in that discipline and kind of build up the intellectual life around those journals. And so I would rather build up the life of Indigenous Studies as opposed to, like I published in Economy and Society, which is a huge journal. I published in Nations and Nationalism, which is um, a huge journal. I mean, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. uh, but I have no interest in building up the disciplines of any of those, any of those journals. It's basically like building up the community, hey? Yeah. So you've been through, um, just kind of building on the peer review again, you've been through the peer review process probably many times, and you've probably been a peer reviewer before, mm-hmm. and I think most of us at this table have been a peer reviewer as well. I've yet to be peer reviewed, but do you have any advice for those who are either going into the peer review process or those who are peer reviewers when they're looking at Indigenous content papers? If you get a peer review, whether it's good or bad, don't take it personally. Mm. Try and kind of break it down piece by piece by piece. Very often what you'll find in a peer review is that there's a lot of kind of debris that doesn't necessarily require a lot of work on your part. So it's almost as important to kind of understand how to answer the reviewer as it is to change the actual piece that you're being asked to to change. So for example, this this um, AT Studies collection that we have coming out, I got this really, I got this review on my piece in particular, which was really kind of snide, but also had some really super important points in it and so I kind of pushed aside the snideness which was like three quarters of it and then one quarter of it kind of substantively changed the chapter in a, in a really good and useful way mm-hmm. so that's the one thing I would say the the thing I would say for those who are just kind of publishing for the first time it's never going to be perfect mm-hmm. but you owe the people who have trained you not to basically send sh- in that's going to waste everybody's time to try and and review 
Yeah. Um, that's not uh, that's not clean clear cut all the time, by the way, yeah. uh, because different. I find that in Aboriginal policy studies, I can get a paper, send it out, and one person will say it's complete stir fried, and the other person will say that it's the best thing since sliced bread, and it's because they're from different disciplines, mm-hmm. and so they're interested in different kinds of different kinds of things. But I would say when you're getting a review, don't take it personally. Do the best you can when you're sending it out. Um, and I would say that when you're actually reviewing. Uh, be specific about what um, you think your issues with the paper actually are. And for Christ's sake, don't be scared to say nice things about the thing that you're reviewing as well. Because a lot of people don't. I just did a, I just did a review of an edited collection. It ended up being 18 pages single-spaced because it was terrible. But there was three or four pieces in it that were amazing. And so I was very clear on kind of what was amazing about them and why I think they probably deserved a better home than this than this edited collection. Yeah, I just wrote my first book chapter in like September. And when I got my peer review back, I was just kind of like had this mentality of like get bent. You don't know what you're talking about yeah, with the peer reviewer. But then I did have to kind of put it aside and be like, OK, like they're actually making some good points. Like I need to get over that. Um, For sure, because if this yeah. is ultimately a collegial enterprise, you don't get to decide on your own whether it's good or not. That's the whole point of sending it out for peer yeah. review. Yeah, exactly. But the other thing I would say is that don't kind of send it out to all and sundry, all and sundry before you send it out to, to peer review. Only send it out to friends and people you trust to give you useful comments on it. Don't send it out to anyone else because mm-hmm. otherwise people are just going to write you criticisms of the paper that they would have written if they had written the paper but didn't. Was there anything about like the publishing process that surprised you? Yeah, I'll tell you the thing that surprised me most and I didn't expect, uh, expect it to surprise me. When you finish a book and it goes into the physical production of the book, you are the least valued member of that production team. Oh, jeez. You're basically... That's a, depressing. Well, because of, because the, everything they're doing, they're, they're kind of surgeons and wizards at what they, mm-hmm. what they do. Yeah. And so I remember when I was getting Métis published, they sent me a couple of book titles, and I fought back and forth with them for about a month over the correct book title. They just they had terrible... I thought had terrible book titles. Mm-hmm. And so we finally settled on the, on the title Métis Race Recognition and the Struggle for Indigenous Peoplehood. The, the actual title that they gave me, the actual book cover that they gave me, I really liked, but I didn't like the font of the, of the, um, uh, of the, the title. And so I wrote back to them and I said, hey, I really like this book title, but can you change the font? And so the book acquisition editor said, well, I'll go check. Uh, and so I didn't hear back from her for a week. So I contacted her and I said, hey, like, what's going on? She said, yeah, the, the um, graphic designer said, uh, no, he's not changing anything because he, he won, like, he's won, like, awards for, like, ten different titles. Mm-hmm. And next time, you know, you want to make comments on the title, uh, perhaps you're cool with um, him coming and making comments on the stuff you write in the book. Yeah. So it's very clear that when you, when you finish writing the book and you did, you've done all of the, um, the copy editing and everything, you're done at that point. That's, mm-hmm. that's you. And then after that, you hand it over to experts who actually kind of put it into, into production. And in fact, I actually, well, I say they, but I actually spelled my wife's name wrong in my acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't find out until the e-book was published. Because her name is Agnieszka Vahatska, so A-G-N-I-E-S-Z-K-A. But for some, for some reason, it got transposed to A-G-N-I-E-S-K-Z-A. So nobody, unless you were from Poland, you'd have no idea that it was misspelled because the, the, the name looks like somebody tripped with a Scrabble board. But when I saw it, I said to, I contacted them and said, hey, my wife's name is spelled, because we were, we were sitting on the couch. I said, oh, look, on my the e-version of the book is out. And she said, oh, cool, let me see. So she started reading the acknowledgments and she said, hey, you spelled my name wrong. And I said, Don't say that, that's not very nice. And she's like, no, it's not very nice. You spelled my name wrong. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, my God. And so I contacted them, and 
asked if it could get it changed and it was going to be really expensive to change it. But then it turned out because I had got my copy edits in so quickly, they basically did it for, for free and just changed the two. And I never would have caught it had she not, mm-hmm. had she not just been reading it like after I gave it to her. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing that surprised me was how not central you are to the book process once you finished your part. You are kind of the intellectual force of the, the book, mm-hmm. but but books are actual physical physical processes with kind of experts and sites and all of that kind of stuff, of which you know nothing, basically. So you're basically just getting in the way if you try and sort of give them ideas about kind of what to do with what they're like, yeah, we got it. Jeez. Yeah. So how much power do you actually have over Zero. the title and over the cover, uh, cover image, I guess? Well, the contract you sign, mm-hmm. they get the final word. But no, no, especially at university press, no university press worth their salt is ever going to ram through a title that the author doesn't, doesn't like. And, and God bless my book acquisition editor, uh, Darcy Cullen at UBC Press, but she basically, she worked with me for a month to get the book title. So I, I wish I had named the book something different than I did. Like after the book came out, I had this flash and I wish I had named the book Métis Beyond Mixedness. And then put the same kind of colon afterwards, but I'm like the George Costanza of uh, book title writers. I guess so. <laughs> the shrimp store called way too late in order yeah. to. So, yeah, but that was the that's the biggest the biggest surprise to me. And the other surprise to me was how easy it is to write 250 pages, and how hard it is to actually maintain a thread of thought over 250 pages. Like how much back and forth work there is between different chapters to make sure that the chapters connect with each other. I thought I would never be able to write that many pages in my entire life. Turns out, not a problem. But making it seamless is much more difficult than I thought. Are you talking about Métis in this instance? Uh, Métis, but also especially writing with the co- a co-writer mm-hmm. uh, in the Indigenous Statistics book was really tough to kind of make consistency across chapters. Do you have any advice for new academics or other writers about how to navigate this relationship? Between... Um, between editors, um, publishing presses, or even like co-author versus co-author, or yeah, I, with co-author, with co-author. I don't want to pit them against each other, but uh, well, with co-authors, I would assume that assuming the person is a is a friend of yours, make sure you guys agree up front mm-hmm. what each person's contribution is going to to be, because that that can end in tears if you if you don't. In terms of the actual um, editing process, um, they're not taking anything personally, so you can't take it personally either. So make sure you ex- exist in a tension between, you know, being being kind of humble when you're dealing with the the editor, and yet also trusting your gut. So if you mm-hmm. feel like you're being kind of um, taken advantage of or or insulted or whatever, you have to, and then figure out um, who your mentors are, who you can go to talk to to make sure that you're not kind of like not over or under understepping something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say too that um, for people who are just starting out writing, I always suggest two books for people to read. One is called How to Write a Lot by Silva, and it's mm-hmm. it's amazing. And the other one is called The War of Art by um, Stephen Pressfield. And it's all about how to kind of push back or push through uh, boundaries that keep you from finishing stuff. Because the, the, most people don't finish dissertations not because they couldn't write enough material for a dissertation. They don't finish dissertations because they never made a decision about what the central idea of the dissertation is. And so they ended up writing three quarter dissertations. So you've got 200 pages on this thing, you've got 200 pages on this, and then you've got 200 pages on this thing, and never the twain shall meet. And that's usually why people don't finish. To write something is not 
to write something else. So how do you make a decision to justify why you wrote what you wrote and then to also justify why you're not writing something else? Well, I know that a lot of, at least in just academics, they're also thinking about their community as well. What would you say or what kind of advice would you give for those folks who are writing for their community? Well, I don't think you should be writing for your community as an academic. I think it's too tough to write for your community. I think you can, I think depending on the type of relationship you have with your community, you can write with community or you can check in with community. Uh, Sorry, it depends on the kind of project you're writing. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something that's kind of, that's uh, more kind of creative, then you want to kind of make sure you have as many voices in the room as possible and the right voices and you want them to be consulted and and equally important to feel consulted. If you're writing something that's kind of super academic, I'm not one of those people that thinks that you should be writing a piece that kind of fits all these different audiences. We're very specialized. Yeah. We're like mechanics, right? So why would you why would you write something for a mechanic and yet also write something for somebody somebody else if if the because the the point of publishing is is to is to advance knowledge and move you along in your career. And it's the same thing I say about people's dissertations. The only people you write for in a dissertation is yourself and your committee. You're not writing for anybody else. If you want to do something for a community later or on the side, awesome. I think that's great and it's really ethical, but that's not the point of a dissertation. A dissertation is a credentialing exercise. Academic publications are the same way. They're credentialing exercises. You're right. I I can't imagine my community wanting to sit down and read my dissertation. My community sure as hell didn't want to read mine. Oh, yeah, I imagine it's so dry to them. Yeah, well, for sure. And and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, no one ever tells my cousin who's a power engineer to write a manual that everybody can read. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's true. Or a mechanic. Write a mechanic manual that everybody can read. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm a big believer that that different communities kind of exist in relationship to and with each other, but we still have our own kind of forms of specialization that need to be kind of honored and valued. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Can I ask you about Aboriginal sure. policy studies? Sure. So, what's the difference between um, editing and publishing for, I guess, emerging academics or young authors versus yourself? Is there a difference? Uh, well, I think. I, I think um, young academics tend to be less sure of themselves and their arguments, mm-hmm. and so they, they probably do more work than they would do later in their career. Um, I mean, do more work in terms of like fixing stuff, fixing stuff up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world, because fixing stuff up is another way of kind of translating between what they're telling you and, and how you put that into kind of the narrative that you've already constructed, and that's, that's fine, and that's never a bad thing. I would say the other thing is um, sometimes the stuff that junior scholars write is of a higher quality than the stuff that later career people write if they don't put the time and energy into writing something that's actually kind of robust. Because there's been some dreck that I've come across that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe they, oh, right, so-and-so. That's why they're letting him publish it because he's, mm-hmm. he's 80. But it's like, you know, he's recycling arguments from 25 years ago. Yeah. Would you say that that's because of apathy or because of their well-known name? Yeah, I think like a that. well-known name, venerability. Sometimes they, despite the fact that it's not, it's pretty roughly hewn, they still have pretty good points that they're making mm-hmm. in the in the piece because they just, they've been around forever. But I find that um, the kinds of pieces you get from junior scholars tend to be less about kind of driving a particular idea forth and more about uh, collecting the literature to sort of talk about how they're emerging from a particular literature. Yeah. I think as you get further on in your career, not everybody, but lots of people will pick a particular 
argument they don't like and then use that as the basis to make their argument as opposed to a junior person who will say, I'm interested in, in indigenous feminism and then give 15 sources on indigenous feminism. They both have their roles to play, but I, I think it's more intellectually generous to be very explicit about kind of who your forebears are and kind of the way that you're contributing and taking from the literature. It's just harder and takes longer. I know just because of comps and other classes and other things like that, that you have this newer publication sources and methods mm-hmm. within indigenous studies. And I guess I'm curious as to um, if you think that there's a big difference between that publication versus your personal publication of Métis. Because oh, yeah. I know I know that sources and methods has a lot of like really fascinating, interesting, almost pushing the boundaries in terms mm-hmm. of research. Like, yeah. How is that? But I mean, an editor is so different than, than being a co-writer. Mm-hmm. An editor is basically you relying on the relationships that you built over years, at least that's this is the way sources and methods worked, to actually have people come together and write something for you who otherwise wouldn't wouldn't do it. I was really lucky that Jeannie O'Brien, uh, who's like this really brilliant um, historian at University of Minnesota, asked me to, to do this with her. Mm-hmm. So between the two of us, we knew most of the people that are doing good stuff in Indigenous studies. And I think with maybe one or two exceptions, everybody said yes. And then so at that point, it's not about putting forward an intellectual argument, although we did write a, an introduction, it's about wrangling people mm-hmm. um, and then also getting them to write, to write an abstract so that you're not having to write every every abstract. Because I think there's like 40, yeah, there's 40 a lot, people there's or something like that. There's a lot of chapters like in there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if we had had if we had, had to write a summary of each of the chapters going forward, it would have taken us another five months, six months to do it. How yeah. would you say then that... How did you develop those relationships? Is this a matter of like, you know, going to years NASA. after going to NASA? Yeah, going to NASA. It's the major way of doing it. And some, I mean, some people I didn't know, but she knew really well. Some people she didn't know, but I knew really well. Mm-hmm. I count probably maybe 10 of the people in that volume were really close friends. Other people were just people who were really well known in the field. I wouldn't say I love their work, but that's okay because I'm not in the discipline that mm-hmm. they were kind of trained in and vice versa. So yeah, editing is really about wrangling. Yeah. Yeah. And what is NASA for those oh, who don't know? <laughs> Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. It's the largest Indigenous Studies Association in the world. It's in New Zealand this year. Yeah. Yeah. New Zealand this year. I think it's Toronto next year, hey? Yeah. And I don't know where after that. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. I'm just gearing in for Toronto because I think it'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it should be fine. It should be fine. I mean, this is this will be my 12th year or 13th year of going. Mm-hmm. I almost didn't go this year. Really? Yeah. Well, oh, I'm really busy. Funding? Yeah. Busy. No, no, not funding. I have lots of funding. It's mm-hmm. I don't have time to actually spend the funding, because because I'm doing the two jobs at the same time. It's very difficult to get time get time away between yeah. doing the interim institutional stuff and then doing the the dean stuff. But in the end, I wanted to see the people who were there, and I'm sure we'll do something kind of slightly more formal when we get there between University of Waikato and um, University of Alberta. Uh, between the the Faculty of Maori Studies there and the Faculty of Native Studies here. I don't know what exactly, but we'll figure something out. Totally. I know that we're very thankful that you were able to carve out an hour at least to speak with us about all of your publications because, I mean, the books that you've written are so foundational to Indigenous Studies and Métis Studies. Yeah, but you know, I'll tell you that that I know you guys are just being really nice and, and, and that's great, but the... Indigenous studies and Métis studies in particular really is a what have you done for me lately? Because mm-hmm. that that book got published in 2014, and already it's not it doesn't have the staying power that other books and other disciplines have, and that's actually not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it just means the 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 field is moving along so quickly, mm-hmm. and so that the the arguments that I made about kind of what makes Métis Métis have been kind of foundational in that sense, but. 
my book rarely gets used for the stuff that I thought was kind of the best parts of the book, the stuff around law, the stuff around the census. Nobody uses it. Mm-hmm. They just sort of complain about how I, I staked out a particular kind of boundary for what Métis identity is and either critique it or agree with it and then kind of move on. So what's that like on a personal level, having your your personal work? Or I imagine it took many, many years to write this book. Yeah, how does that feel, like years. you know, having... Having so and so just dispute it or whatever, you know. Oh, I don't. I don't mind. I don't mind that. And there's lots of things, obviously, that are that are a week in the book. And I've had. I actually had several female friends because I had some gender stuff in the book before I put it out, mm-hmm. and they basically said, "No, it's terrible. Take it out, mm-hmm. and then kind of do something with gender in the future." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So I took it out and put it forward. But it was the first kind of book of its of its kind. So and books can't do everything. There's nothing in there on on kind of a disability, on LBDGQ, like any of that kind of stuff, right? So yeah. but I mean um, it's still a it's still a totally valid critique that it doesn't talk about gender specifically. Gender specifically, especially given the role that that Metis women have played in kind of Metis governance and in and in the courts. It feels like if it's somebody I care about and they make a critique of the book, then I take the critique to heart. Mm-hmm. If it's somebody I don't respect and they make a critique of the book, yeah, I just I don't, I don't care. I've, it's, I think it had uh, 16 reviews and all of them basically said the same thing. Chris really seems to know what he's talking about, but he's sure going to make a lot of people mad with this book. It's like, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah, I don't care. I'm pretty good with critique in the sense of it's someone whose opinion I respect about something and they critique me on something, then it gives me pause to think about it. And I, I don't always agree with them, but it's something I have to kind of process. If it's somebody I I don't care for the opinion of, I'll still listen to their critique because it's possible that they, but generally speaking, I, I just, I don't care. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was raised in cultural studies, right? And whenever they said, oh, if somebody, if there's a stir, I guess, around your presentation or around your publication, that means it's a good thing. But it's not always. Right? It could be a stir around really bad ones too. I guess that's true. Yeah, and, and, and has been. Yeah, husband. Like if you look at these, if you look at these folks, kind of on the east coast and stuff, like it's, yeah, it's it's banana. And the stuff that Daryl Larue is doing right now uh, with this book that's coming out, I think it's called Distorted Descent or Distorting Descent, mm-hmm. and he's he's kind of showing all the different ways in which they're attempting to use genealogy as a way to kind of push this kind of frame of whiteness forward. Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the totem poles with the eagle on the top on the East Coast, which doesn't make any sense. Well, but, you know. most of the stuff, people will sort of say that they're Métis because they have a lateral ancestor from, like, mm-hmm. three times over and kind of 400 years back, and it's like, okay. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. No. Whatever. No. Hmm. But that would have been my next book if I had actually hadn't taken on the, the deanship. would have been about kind of that mm-hmm. self-indigenization and those... Mm-hmm those kind of um that white possessiveness behind those claims it still could be yeah eventually do you hope hope to get there like back to more writing no not really no no i mean what i'm going to try and actually do is start uh, writing blog stuff again yeah because it's like a couple thousand words i can kind of bang out in a couple of hours i still do i'm spending most of my time now as a dean uh doing um uh, edited collections. So I try and bring junior scholars along so they get publications on their CV and then kind of just put stuff forward where it's, it, wrangling doesn't take as much time as writing. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier for me to kind of ask people to do stuff and then I just write an intro. Yeah. So what would you say then about like virtual communities, like with social media or blogging or whatever, as opposed to traditional publishing? I think uh, people say smart stuff in a whole different variety of venues. I think they do different kinds of things. Kim Do- Kim Tallbear, most of the stuff she writes starts off as tweets and then it turns into a blog and then it turns into a, a chapter or a, or an article. So there's lots of different ways to engage with it. I've actually gone off Twitter 
mm-hmm. uh, because I just it's I find it's too anxiety inducing for me. I noticed, yeah. yeah. A lot of people go on and off Twitter. Yeah, I'm mostly off. Yeah. I just I don't get enough stuff out of it, and there's too much kind of Puritan politics on there. So if you say the wrong word or whatever, it's like nah. For someone like me who says as many wrong words as I do, it's just better for me not to. Not worth it. Yeah, so I just go and watch Family Fight on Facebook, where I kind of kind of. You know, know the players a bit right. better. I, I joke, my family's not actually fighting right now, but but um, yeah. I just I think they have different kinds of roles to play in different different excuse me jobs that they they do, and they can work really well with each other. The only thing is that I don't really see online communities as communities because people, for the most part, can just step out whenever they want, and that's not really a community to me. I guess that's true. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a communitas like there's a there's a kind of a, a shared interpretation of what they're talking about, and that's all cool. But I don't there isn't the same kind of accountability online as you would get with people who you grew up with or that you're related to or whatever. So I kind of I see that kind of as distinguishing, yeah, mm-hmm. as a distinguishing feature. Yeah, relationality only goes to the face to face contact, right? Yeah, and it, but it's not like you know the, there aren't real consequences in person sometimes for people that do things online. Like for sure there is, but I just I still don't think it's the same as for good and ill. Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, it allows you to kind of do and be a particular thing online that you could never be in person, which yeah. is not terrible either. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but nobody's on, like, online is not going to say, like, hey, aren't you, or, like, in real life, like, hey, aren't you this person? Yeah. Twitter? Or, like, but as in real life, like, in, in our communities, um, people will definitely go, like, aren't you this, this LaRocque's kid? And yeah. Like, no. No, that's not me. Yeah. Or whatever. Or the opposite. Someone yeah. will call you to account yes. and you don't know them at all. Like you're just you're just a stranger to me. And you didn't like because I used some magic word and yeah. now you're I don't know you. Like what do you mean mm-hmm. I owe you an apology? I don't know you. I'm not Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that kind of thing, right? So yeah. The sassy tweets <laughs> to do sometimes. I don't mind sassy tweets. <laughs> I don't mind sassy tweets. And I yeah. and I grew up with really strong indigenous women in particular. I have no problem because sometimes I say dumb stuff and it's cool to get called out on it. Mm-hmm. And people that get that call you out on it that still want to kind of talk to you afterwards, hundred percent not a problem with that. But if there's someone who they're just kind of doing this as part of the bulldozing that they're doing that day. Yeah. I have no time for that. Trolls. Yeah. Well not even trolls. Like they may be kind of well meaning people, but they're yeah. calling you on stuff and they don't know you. Yeah. And that's the thing that bothers me most about that environment. There's a great book called um, Against Purity, mm-hmm. and it's all about kind of the way in which kind of the self-righteousness manifests itself in, in social media mm-hmm. contexts. So how do you, I guess, how do you mitigate that? And how do you... You go off. You go off. Uh, how, do you, how do you talk to students about that? Well, I'm speaking as a student, of well, course. Well, <laughs> but we've, we've talked about this in the professional development classes. Did, you, yeah. you have to be careful. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to protect your own spirit because nobody else is going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. And so no one's going to miss you if you go off Twitter. But if you stop talking to family, people will miss you. So mm-hmm. it's great that Twitter's here. It's great that people can use it and sort of gain value from it. Awesome. But it's no big, it's no big impact on your life for the most mm-hmm. part. For some people who grow up in really tough family situations, Twitter and social media more generally can be a lifeline totally get that legit Mm -hmm. but for a lot of people they're on it because they're bored or because they find it fun or whatever you have to make a decision about whether the risks are worth the reward and if they're not there's nothing saying you have to be on there and you're really not going to lose any academic prospects because you're not on you're not on twitter Mm -hmm. you may not get some but those are all kind of flash in the pan prospects anyway i'm wondering then um would you say that your work just speaks for yourself in terms of that you don't really need social media to be successful? No, that's the opposite, actually. I don't know. <laughs> no, my work never speaks for my... I never, people never get out of my work what I think is in my, 
my work. And that's because yeah. I'm a really kind of dense writer. And so mm-hmm. it makes it very difficult for people to... No, I never I never think that. I just mostly don't care. Mm-hmm. So if people like my stuff on Twitter or don't like my stuff on Twitter, I don't care. If people like my book or don't like my book, if they've got a good critique, then I'll listen to it. Otherwise, I don't care. Because you, have you ever heard that expression, the reason why infighting in academia is so vicious is precisely because the stakes are so small? People just like just sometimes people just want to grind into you for things. It's like just dude, like mm-hmm. just relax. I just I don't care. Yeah. And I think caring less is something that junior professors, although it's really hard to do because you're beset by all the anxieties of getting tenure and all of that kind of stuff, it's a really important, a thick skin is something that's really important to to muster, I would say. Totally. I still haven't yet, but that's what I always tell people is a thick skin is really important because mm-hmm. there are people who definitely have no interest in protecting your spirit, so you have to do it yourself. I think that's a really important thing to kind of bring up too, right? Because we're just, we're holistic people, right? It's just sure. not one, the one mental thing, which is what's really pushing academia. But 100%. I mean, there's so many different parts of ourselves. And I, I think that's really important that you bring that up. Yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, when you'll say something and someone will say, oh, I can't believe you said that that's the real you. Yeah. Well, no, they're all the real me. There's just, I said a bad word or I made a mistake or whatever, but it's like people focus on that one thing and it doesn't matter all the other stuff that you've that you've mm-hmm. you know that you've done so yeah Absolutely. and i think social media in in particular is bad for that oh yeah i know i've made many sassy tweets mm, i will not, speak for you not sheila at all ever i know that you your time is really valuable so i mean i guess we'll just wrap up with a final question sure i know that our podcast is really to inspire indigenous authors to get writing and write their stories and do acting or whatever it is that they want to do however they want to publish Mm -hmm. so would you have any advice for these people whoever they may be and how to get their stories out Mm. well i would say two things right off the bat write what you know and write what you love Mm -hmm. so don't let people tell you that something is interesting or not interesting or doable or not doable there's all kinds of stuff that gets published that people never would have expected to get published. Trust in yourself and trust the process. It's not enough that you want to write something. You actually have to put time with your bum in a seat and actually do it. And make sure you've got a good posse of people. Uh, you've got compadres that are actually willing to give you good, useful, constructive mm-hmm. advice. And you have to believe in yourself because very few other people will. That's not the way academia is set up. If you're lucky, you get a number of good mentors that believe in you and will will kind of help you not make kind of the worst missteps going forward, but not everyone is not everyone's that, is that lucky. We're really lucky in the faculty because we have a number of amazing people here, but not everybody, people are, are often in much more isolated situations. So it's really important to write what you know, write what you love, and believe in yourself. Perfect. God, that's so corny. But it's true. It is, but, but it's, it's true. true. It's true. You really have to because there's a lot of other people that won't. Mm -hmm. And not for good reason. They won't just because they're cynical and it costs them nothing not to believe in you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Well, thank thank you you so much for your time. Well, thank you guys. Um, And I guess until next time.